What will the Fed do next? You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This year is David Hansen. It is Monday. David, it is not Monday. It is not. No, it's not Monday. It feels like Monday. I'm wrong already. Let's just let's just start over. No, uh, yeah, we had the holiday yesterday, so it is Tuesday. It is Tuesday. Overstock.com accepting bitcoins. David, if you could pick one merchant that would be accepting bitcoins, what would it be? One merchant, I don't, I don't know one, but any place that I go to buy like an embarrassing movie or something like a chick flick. <laughs> so it's an, it, Bitcoin, it's anonymous. It's perfect. All of your rom-coms. It's a perfect combination. Well, there you go. All right, let's get to the headlines. First headline of the day comes from the Wall Street Journal. And the headline is, next cut in Fed bond buys looms. Uh, that's a tough one to read. <laughs> There's all this speculation. What is the Fed going to do next? Are they going to continue the taper? Are they going to taper further? And there's a lot of pushback now after uh, last month's jobs report. And look, one month of job numbers, one, one month of disappointing job numbers does not mean that the economic recovery is suddenly sputtered out. I don't see why there is any good reason for the Fed to, to stop in its, its path now, particularly because there's a long way to go before accommodation is fully pulled away. There's, all of the, there's the Treasury bond buying, there's the, um, there's the mortgage bond buying, and then there's also the Fed funds rate, which is still at 0 to 0.25%. So there's a long runway for the Fed to the, the, uh, further accommodation. Right, and when you talked about the mortgage-backed security part of the equation, there are less mortgage-backed securities being issued. So the issuance in the total market is shrinking. So when the Fed shrinks, the market is shrinking. So even if they're reducing their what they're buying in mortgage-backed securities, the percentage of kind of what they're controlling in the market may stay the same. So that's another thing to consider. So your, your bet, does, does the Fed taper further at the next yeah, meeting? Yeah, I think so. I will agree. Next headline. Next headline. Got a trio of headlines. Got some Whoa. earnings coming out today. Travelers reporting today, Regions and Synovus. We mentioned this on Friday's show. So I thought we could circle back and see yeah. what were the results. Uh, I guess we can kick it off with, with Travelers there. One of the first insurers, I think the, the first kind of big insurer uh, to report. Anything that stood out to you? Huge. Well, uh, year over year, what you're looking at is, a, is big gains on the bottom line, but a lot of that is because there are fewer losses this year. Of course, the fourth quarter of last year included Hurricane Sandy, so that took a big bite out of, of Traveler's uh, bottom line. So the, the big jump year over year isn't that meaningful. Uh, what I thought was interesting was that uh, in the press release, uh, they talked about active pricing strategy improved profitability. The translation to me for that is that the pricing environment continues to be favorable uh, to travelers, to insurers in general. That's a good thing. Uh, and in the Bloomberg article there, Fishman uh, Quoting Fishman, they said, he said last year that Travelers was a no-excuses company that would take action in the, faces, in the face of challenges to its profitability. It is kind of a difficult, still a difficult environment for insurers because of low interest rates. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but Travelers' performance here in the quarter, in the full year, looks pretty darn good. Moving over to regions, pretty standard quarter for regions, I would say. It's a, pretty much a continuation of what we've seen. Funding costs have come down. CDs are rolling off the books. Loans are up. Um, they're now having the vision of we want to build relationships, own the relationship. We hear that from every bank, though. It now becomes right. a question of can they actually do it, make good loans, and own the relationship. If they can, I think it's a good opportunity. It still trades at 1.4 times tangible book, which isn't as cheap as it used to be mm-hmm. about a year ago. But for a bank that could generate good returns over a long time, 
I think 1.4 times tangible book is a reasonable price. Bank. If owning the relationships. If they can own the relationship, that's kind of what the, the transition is now, moving from cleaning up to actually being a good bank. And Synovus? Synovus, again, nothing too flashy <laughs> here. Uh, the thing that they kept highlighting in their press release was that loans were up 7%, which in a vacuum doesn't mean much to me. I mean, like we said on shows before. They're just getting very aggressive. Anybody can give loans. Uh, and like uh, regions, this now trades at 1.4 times book. And if we look at, we have a chart here of where Synovus is traded at over the last year. A year ago, it was at a 20% discount to tangible book, and now it's up uh, near 1.3 wow. times tangible book there. The so the valuation has really come along with Synovus here. You're not getting a bank that's at a bargain basement price anymore, but like regions, if they can be a good bank, it can still be uh, an opportunity. Of the three we just talked about here, Travelers, Regions, Synovus, what was your number one pick if you had to add one to your portfolio? I already own Regions, and I'm going to stick with it. All right, I'd go Travelers. All right. All right, third headline. We've got Deutsche Loss is a dark cloud. Uh, This was kind of ugly. Deutsche Bank uh, reported a big unexpected loss here, and this article is essentially saying that this could be a a harbinger for what we're going to see from some of the other big European banks. One of the things that I've got to point out here in the article, it says, it marks the third time in the past five quarters that Deutsche Bank's results have missed market expectations. i got to call shenanigans on that. Give credit here to our friend of the show, Morgan Housel, who who likes to say this. No, the company did not miss market expectations. Market expectations were just wrong. They they, uh, misestimated what the company was going to report. The other thing that I'll point out from this, and maybe you can give some more substantive remarks on Deutsche, but one of the reasons for the loss was uh, increasing reserves against loan losses. What I find interesting here is that this is pointed out as a bad thing mm-hmm. when Deutsche is raising them, but when the other banks, the, the banks that, that we've been talk, we talk about a lot here, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, those uh, U.S. banks, when they're lowering those reserves, when they're re- releasing those reserves, that's suddenly bank accounting wizardry. Right. So, uh, so I'll call shenanigans again there. And some of the speculation in terms of why they took more reserves uh, this quarter was that it was part of the asset quality review from the ECB, which is going to become the, its supervisory role later this year. Mm-hmm. They're going through the bank's books saying, is this appropriate where you have this mark to market, et cetera. So that's some of the speculation that this was kind of started with the ECB. So maybe we will see that uh, go throughout the other European banks. Does Deutsche Bank make it onto your radar at all? Um, Potentially. Uh, We've got some emails to the WTMI mailbox of people saying, what about European banks? You guys never talk about European banks. It's on my to-do list to become more comfortable with the European banks. So maybe we can give the listeners Maybe that's a focus for later in the week. Maybe the week, maybe the next week. I might, I might need some more seasoning time to, okay, to get, her, get my head around it. But, but soon. Soon. All right. Moving on to the focus for the day. The focus for today, this is going to be, prepare yourself, this is going to be so exciting. But really, in, in seriousness, this is very important. Combined ratio. Mm-hmm. So for anybody that's going to invest in an insurance company, combined ratio is essential to know. I, I think if you're, if you're picking out maybe one or two or three numbers to know from an insurer combined ratio has pretty much got to be one of them. Right. So let's start with the what is combined ratio. And I know you've, you've, got, a, you've got a nice little graphic We've here. We've got a graphic, it. and I feel so, bad so for So why don't you go, go ahead. So the combined ratio, it's an equation. It's incurred losses, so paying claims, plus expenses, kind of what you have to pay your people, uh, run the business, over earned premiums. So if we think about an insurance contract, a uh, the premiums being paid, 
it's prorated for the lifespan. So the earned for that time period is earned And it premium. backs out any premiums that have been ceded to a reinsurer or anything like that? Correct. So incurred losses, claims paid out, expenses paid running the business over premiums earned. Uh, so ideally, like the efficiency ratio when we talk about banks, you would like this to be as low as possible. Uh, low indicating that you're underwriting profitably and making money that way through the business. Un- unlike a bank, though, you're going to see the combined ratio typically be mu- a little bit higher. Right. Uh, for banks, you're going to see a, a, most of the profitability coming from within that efficiency ratio. And a combined ratio, and here, here's the interesting thing. So what does is, what is the combined ratio tell you? In general terms, it's is the company underwriting profitably? And what's interesting is you can have different approaches to using the insurance business, using the combined ratio. Some companies, uh, some insurers will uh, write insurance basically to grow premiums Mm -hmm. and be able to invest those premiums. That's called the float. Maybe we can cover that another day. But invest those premiums and earn most of their income on the investments and then not worry as much about profitably underwriting. Uh, Other companies are very, very strict about wanting to underwrite profitably. Now, is there a preference for an, from an investor's perspective on choosing between these two types of companies? Generally, I would say yes. And I would say you would want to focus on the companies that want to underwrite profitably, that are, that are dead set on underwriting profitably. And most of these tend to be the most successful insurers. So Berkshire Hathaway, very big on underwriting profitably. Markel, very big on underwriting profitably. And historical AIG mm-hmm. was very, very big on underwriting profitably. I believe that AIG has gotten back to that point now, but uh, you know we can still uh, watch, watch and see what's going on there. Um, one thing to watch out for with combined ratios is that not every type of insurance business is the combined ratio going to act the same way. Right. So if we have a, an auto insurer like Progressive, for instance, so Progressive's combined ratio has consistently been in the low to mid-90s, meaning that they're essentially profitable to the tune of call it 5 to 9, 5 to 10 percent. This is over the last five years or so. Mm -hmm. Very consistent there. Now, if we look at some property, certain types of property casualty insurers, particularly reinsurers, uh, that can fluctuate uh, in a big way. So Montpelier Re, which is a reinsurer, uh, had a combined ratio of 62 in 2009, meaning it was a very profitable on its insurance, 82 in 2010, so that profitability declined a little bit, And then 131 in 2011. So they were very unprofitable on, ins- uh, on their underwriting in 2011. Does that mean that they were just becoming a progressively worse insurer? Well, not really, because then the combined ratio dropped back down to 81 in 2012. Right. So that's going to be very dependent on when the losses fall for, for a reinsurer, certain types of property and casualty. Yeah, that's what I had written down, too, is you can't look at just one year. Because if you find an insurance company and you say, oh, my gosh, a 70% combined ratio and they make good investment income, putting all my investment in here, my entire 401k is going in there, then the next year that could jump up to over 100%, potentially be a bad year. So you really have to look at the track record of the management team in place. Well, there you go. All right. I think that hits it. Now, moving on to the mailbag, we have an email address. The email address is WTMI at fool.com. We love to get your email, so why don't you go ahead and shoot us an email. Speaking of the insurance industry, Carl Hawkins sent us an email, and Carl wrote, I believe near the end of December or early part of January, you recommended PTP, Platinum Underwriters. Uh, But within a couple of days, it had a two-point drop, and the chart is really not enticing. Can you explain why someone would buy PTP at this point in time? 
So uh, I'll start off here since I'm a big fan of, of Platinum Underwriters, and I actually have this in my real money portfolio on Fool.com. Uh, the first thing I'll say is I hadn't really looked at the chart, to be honest, and, and I don't really know what an enticing chart looks like versus a not enticing chart, um, except that I know over, the, over a long period of time, I, I would prefer to see a chart that goes up Optimal. rather than down. But why do I like Platinum? I, I like it because I'm thinking about this as a business, and this is an insurance business that I think is run by really good management team that is focused on underwriting profitably, as we just talked about in the combined ratio segment there, and is very wise about capital allocation. And as we go through, this is, we were just talking about travelers earlier and how the pricing environment for travelers has been pretty good. Mm-hmm. That's for primary insurance. For reinsurance, it hasn't been quite as good. And so Platinum and other reinsurers have had to get a little bit more, um, a little bit more conservative about right. what they're doing. So they're not writing as many premiums. But they're doing things like buying back stock, which I think for Platinum is a great call given that it's trading at a discount to tangible book value. And they're also getting more conservative on their investments because interest rates are so low. So they're very liquid, very much in cash. Um, so I like, the, I like the insurance. I, I like the management here. I like the way they're running the business. I like how they're allocating capital. Um, and finally, again, as I mentioned, the stock is trading at a discount to tangible book value. Put that all together, and this is why I like uh, Platinum. And uh, I'll point out, too, that over the past decade, Platinum has managed to grow its adjusted tangible book value per share by around 10 or 11% per mm-hmm. year, which is pretty nice. Right, and you talk about them buying back shares. They have been incredible. Monsters. Monsters cannibals, if you will, in terms of buying back their own shares. Uh, I don't have the count in front of me, but I think they've reduced share count by maybe 50% over the last five years or so. It's been Pretty incredible, and when you're reinvesting it at those rates, it's going to be a good thing for shareholders. Yep. And the company is expected to report earnings on February 4th, so we'll get another update on where the business is. We will. We will. Uh, moving on to, and hopefully we'll have a little of that. Moving on to the game for today. The game for today is making the grade, um, and this is where we will present a scenario. I'll give you a scenario, David, mm-hmm. and we'll draw a beautiful artistic rendering we will. of how we see that scenario. So the first one. First scenario is MasterCard's chances of being a $150 billion company by 2017. This is not a a creative drawing. Whoa. It's a 66. It's a 66%. 66% chance MasterCard becomes a $150 billion company. And my rationale behind that is MasterCard's own goals are to grow EPS 20% annually over the next two, three years. Uh, So if they do that... If they grow EPS by 20% over the next three years and trade at 29 times earnings, they're now in the mid-30s, so that multiple would come back, but they still grow EPS by 20% a year. That would get them to a $150 billion market cap there, which for investors, that'd be 15% annualized returns. Pretty good. And I think that's reasonable, 66% chance. All right. So I've got a little... Drawing here that line right there in the middle, that's the average. This line with the arrow, that's where MasterCard is. I think they've got a little bit better than an average chance of doing this. I anchored on that 15% per year number that you were talking about. So if we're, if we're looking at that, we're going to think about how fast can it grow earnings, which you already covered. Mm-hmm. I think it's a pretty good, pretty good chance that they'll grow earnings that fast. But then the question is, does the valuation multiple hold up? That, I think, is a lot more questionable. Right. So I think better than average chances that they make it to $150, uh, 150 billion, but not perfect. All right, second scenario. Uh, second scenario, 
We've got uh, J.P. Morgan's response to attack to the attacks on its reputation. Attacks. That kind of I'm showing my bias. Insinuates my that, bias is showing. Yeah, that's, you you made that situation. So I, I think did. some of them are justified. I'm going to give them a D plus and might surprise some people and some listeners of the show. I've been uh, a fan of the stock of J.P. Morgan, but the response has has not been great. We really haven't heard. We've heard Jamie Dimon come out and say mistakes were made, we're moving past it, but it hasn't been the best response to, to shareholders. Some people are still upset, saying he shouldn't be chairman anymore. So he's somewhat owned the mistakes, but not totally. Uh, things keep coming up, new things keep coming up, so I'm going to give him a D plus. I still like the stock, but i got to say, it hasn't been handled optimally. This, this shows off my lack of drawing skills right now. Also, I should have drawn that a lot bigger, but that is a dog with its tail between its legs. Uh, I, I think since the, since the onslaught has really come, Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan have backed off significantly, mm-hmm. and you've, you've seen them, I think, trying to at least publicly show that they're, uh, even if they're not doing something different internally, I, I think and hope that they are, but they've been backing off a lot of stuff. Just in the uh, front page of the Wall Street Journal today, there's an article that said, J.P. Morgan Chase has pulled out of a billion-dollar initial public offering of a Chinese chemical company and won't seek a role in the IPO of a Chinese state-owned train maker. So this is all uh, the allegations against its, uh, its Chinese arm mm-hmm. over there and the hiring practices, so you can see that that's actually affecting the business. So I think dog betw- uh, with its tail between its legs. Of course. All right, third one. This guy's story. Now let's see the picture there. And this is a this is a former Deutsche Bank uh, executive. Yes. Who there there are two different stories here. One story he he says that um, he basically got beaten up by the police for essentially no reason at all, and he's actually suing the police department out in California for that. Uh, the police's version is that he was um, erratic and and potentially on bath salts. And they had to forcibly restrain him, and they were within his, um, w- within their training yep. to use that kind of force. What do you got there? I'm giving that a grade of a person just covering their eyes, and what are you going to do? I mean, and his story, we're talking about grading his story, was that he, j- he went to a motel, and he was just trying to go to sleep. Um, he went out of the hotel, and the cops grabbed him and, and beat him up. Cop story was that he was dragging a trash can across the street, tried to jump into someone's minivan. So I'm just covering my eyes. It's unbelievable. All right. So uh, <laughs> this is all, continue to be all over the place here. This is crazy. This is pants. This story is crazy pants. <laughs> I think no matter which leg you said, no matter which way you cut it, that is just wild and crazy. Laugh it up. Laugh it up. All right. Uh, finishing off today in the Twitter sphere. David. Boy, that's a long laugh. Never <laughs> gets, never gets it's really, really funny. First tweet What's is first from AIG, AI, at AIG Insurance. Proud of our CEO, Robert H. Benmoshe, for being named the 2013 Insurance Leader of the Year. Good pick? I think so. Who would have been second? Who would have been runner-up for you? Insurance Man of the Year. Ajit Jain. Okay. Of uh, Berkshire, Hathaway, uh, Berkshire Hathaway's reinsurance. Uh, but he would be my pick every year. Not Tony Nicely? Maybe. No, I, I, third. I, I like Ajit better. Okay, he gets I, the bronze medal. Uh, Tony? Yeah. Maybe. Are you giving him the bronze medal? Are you giving him the silver? They all get gold in my book. Oh, Everybody gets go. gold. All right, second tweet. We've got a little crowd turtle. That's at crowd turtle. Wait until Wall Street figures out what happens to the BAC, that's Bank of America, warrants when a high enough dividend is paid. 
paid, they gonna freak. I put this in there just because I know you love to hate the Warrens. I don't hate the Warrens. Bank of America Warrens. We talked about these a couple shows ago. We had a question about them. And he says they're going to freak when the dividend uh, gets moved higher. And the reason is, I don't think we talked about this when we addressed them on the show, Uh, looking at the Bank of America Class A Warrens. They have two classes here. These expire in January of 2019, Mm -hmm. so five years from now. And the strike price is $13.30. Once the dividend moves above one cent, the difference between, say it moves to two cents and that one cent, the strike price will be reduced by one cent each time. So that's why he's saying they're going to freak. If we see Bank of America increase their dividend, that will slowly reduce the strike price, which is good for these holders of the warrants. There you go. All right. Play it again. (laughs) Finish this off with our last tweet. Final tweet is from Matt McWilliams. He says, like him or not, Richard Sherman is a genius. Graduated from Stanford with communications degree. Marketing stock soaring now. Are you buying Richard Sherman stock? <laughs> I, I am. You know, I, I don't want to direct people away from Fool.com necessarily, but there's a really interesting article about him on Huffington Post uh, just talking about his background. And the guy's got a really interesting background, and I think it's a great example of people rushing to judgment without knowing who or what they're actually judging. I agree. I'm buying the stock. He's only 25 years old, around 6'3". Got a, that's a durable Yeah, he ought, to take, right he ought to take a page out of uh, Arian Foster's book and, and file an IPO, right? Exactly. I'm looking at 20% annualized returns over the next four years. Okay, so I think we're going to peel back to the question I asked you at the beginning. What, uh, what vendor would you like to accept Bitcoin? And that's going to be the question for, the, for yes. today for, uh, for our followers, for the WTMIRs to answer on Twitter, at TMF Financials, yes. or on Facebook, Motley Fool Financial Services. And that's our show. See you tomorrow. All right. Thanks a lot for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.